you are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, including our gathering times at Fishers, Eagle Creek, Noblesville, Pendleton, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Ross Steele. We're going to be in verse 12 this morning. And as we start with verse 12, that is verse 13. There we go. All right. Uh, then Abner sent messengers to David in his place saying, whose is the land? Make your covenant with me and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. He said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. Namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. So that brings us this morning. What is exactly going on? Abner, we see he is a, he is a skilled power broker, is he not? Like he, he's, he's really just trying to make it work for him. And when it comes down right to it, he is not interested in loyalty. Not at all. He is interested in opportunity. And with David, Abner sees opportunity. But he has to present himself to David as the only man with whom David needs to negotiate. To whom does the land belong, is what he says in verse 12. Abner believes it belongs to him. And if David is willing to make a deal, he will bring over all Israel to David. He may look at him as a a kingmaker of sorts. And as we see from verse 13, David is very pleased with this plan. And he must know that Abner genuinely is the real power behind the house of Saul. But David issues an appeal. He has a demand, a condition, perhaps, that he wants attached to this treaty with Abner. Unless Abner brings David's wife, Michael, with him when he comes to Hebron, he will not be welcomed. This is all David asks. And there will be no deal if he doesn't do so. And we remember, though, that there was a time where David basically gave Michael up, but there was essentially no divorce in this. And, and Abner is seeking assistance. So, so he's got to do all, he's got to play, get all the pieces together, come back together. Okay, David, here we go. This is what I got for you. So why is Michael so important? Well, I think it's clear that from the descriptive phrases attached to both Michael's and Ishbosheth's names, Michael, Saul's daughter, and Abner, Saul's son, we are reminded in verse 14, David secured Michael's hand in marriage. Way back in verse First uh, Samuel chapter eighteen, and he did this by killing and circumcising one hundred Philistines. He went and collected a hundred foreskins. Weird, right? Okay, but not as weird that he just went and collected one hundred foreskins. But in in First uh, Samuel chapter eighteen, he said, "No, all I'm actually all good. I'll do two hundred. So he goes, collects the 200. But here we also see how he is also humble in this because he doesn't say, "I collected." 200 foreskins. He said, I collected the hundred and he just leaves it like, this is the above and beyond gift that I'm going to give because she's worthy of it. Right. And ultimately, yes, foreskins, not the most romantic engagement or wedding story. Is it? 
or is it actually? Because funny story, actually true story too. We had just tech, we had just covered First Samuel chapter eighteen, and I got to talk about foreskins, and I had a heyday. It was a blast, and. Uh, and I, so Joey is Kelsey's dad. And when I went to ask Kelsey or Kelsey's dad for her hand in marriage for permission, essentially, I said, so Joey, listen up. Uh, and you know me, I'm not very serious all the time. So neither is he either. So I was like, let's, you know, cut the, cut that out. Joey, how many foreskins is it going to take for me to marry your wife? Or marry, oh, that'd be really weird. <laughs> to marry your daughter. <laughs> yeah, not wife. Nope, we're, we don't do that here, guys, okay? How many foreskins is it going to take to marry your daughter? Honestly, and he just, he laughed, and he said, oh, let me think about it. He came back, he said like 500 or something crazy. I said, all right, consider it done. She's 100% worth it. She, she's uh, worth far more than any amount that I could ever imagine. Uh, and that is actually a true story. That did happen. It actually happened right at the doors, too. It was in church when I said it. <laughs> it was so good. It was fun. Uh, all right, we're, that's enough. Okay, we're going to continue on. According, according to 1 Samuel chapter 25, when Saul was trying to kill David... And David was hiding in the southern deserts of Israel. Saul decided he was going to give Michael to another man. Since there doesn't seem to have been a divorce, David really does believe that Michael still belongs to him and that he has every right to reclaim Michael as his wife. And given those descriptive phrases about Michael and Ishbosheth being Saul's children, I think it's pretty fair, honestly, to say that David believes it only strengthens his throne to have some legitimate connection to the house of Saul, which is what this still is at this time, because David hasn't been given all kingship over all of Israel. And Ishbosheth complies with David's demand. He, he goes, he no doubt under pressure, goes, gets Michael. And verse, six, verse 16 is a sobering reminder of the very real, very human collateral damage that resulted from uh, Saul's rebellious reign and the difficulty of establishing David's throne over Israel. But can Abner really bring all the tribes of Israel to David? And we look at this in verse 17 and 21. Verse 17, uh, now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel saying, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it for the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant, David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. And then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to, the Lord, uh, to my Lord the king, that they may make covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So what does this bring us to? And it appears, actually, it appears to us, that from what we read in verse 17, that many of the elders of Israel had actually previously wanted David to lead them. They, they wanted that. And they're the elders, so why didn't they get that? That's a whole other question. But maybe Abner persuaded them to follow and fight for Ishbosheth instead. And that's really unclear. These are just speculations, ultimately. And it's unclear how many tribes were actually even loyal, uh, uh, loyal to Ishbosheth. 
But here, Abner is persuading them to go uh, with their first instincts, go with David. And verse 19 tells us that Abner even made a special trip to Benjamin. And Benjamin, which is actually his own tribe and Saul's tribe, and therefore required more diplomacy because of their loyalties. So when Abner and his entourage finally come to Hebron, he comes empowered by the assurances he has received from the other 11 tribes. Again, in verse 21, Abner speaks of himself as Israel's king maker. I will rise, I will go, I will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king. Whatever David thought of Abner personally, he's clearly eager to extend his reign through peaceful efforts rather than war. And we look at in verse 22 here, as we continue on. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab saying, Abner, the son of Ner came to the king and he has sent him away and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And is he already gone? And you know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn from your going out and coming in to find out all that you are doing. What do we pick up from this text? There's the, there's the other general of the story, which he just appears here. This is Joab. Joab is the commander of David's troops. We first met Joab back in chapter 2, along with his brothers, Abishai and Azahel. We know from 1 Chronicles that Zeruiah, which is David's sister, is actually their mother. So this would make these three men, Joab, or, uh, Joab Abishai, and Azahel, David's nephews. But while all of that is interesting, the most important thing for us to remember here in these moments is what we learned in chapter 2 about Joab and Abner, these two generals. Now, as you might remember, in the midst of the first battle between Joab's army and Abner's army, Abner had killed Azahel, which is Joab and Abishai's brother. And, even da and, and when David's men discovered the body of Azahel, we were told in chapter 2, verse 24, that Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. They, 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 they clung over him. They, they, were, they cried out in, in anger, in pain, in frustration, in hurt, in, in, in grief, in sorrow. And they had nothing but vengeance on their mind. And these brothers, they were out for blood. But the pursuit was long and drawn out. And in the end, the two armies agreed to go their own ways. So knowing all of that, it's no surprise that, as we see here, Joab is extremely angry when he finds out that not only has Abner come to Hebron, but that he was allowed to leave in peace. Now you can see from verses 24 and 25 that Joab frames the issue for David as a matter of national security. How could David have been so foolish? How could he have let him in? He's trying to make, he's trying to make him look like He's just there to spy. He's trying to look at his coming out and his coming in and where he's going, what his army's like, so that he can overtake him. And that is the way that the picture is being painted here. Abner is trying to paint Joab as a spy, as a, as a, as a terrorist to the kingdom, essentially. And we know from the first half of chapter 3 that this isn't true. But this is how Joab wants to explain his bitterness and his resentment. 
But Joab cannot accept the deal or the idea of a deal with Abner. And he certainly cannot accept that Abner has been allowed to leave Hebron unscathed. So look at what he does in verses 26 to 30. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with them privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house that there, and, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So we see here that they get their vengeance. But what we also see is how David responds. And he, you know, Abner had, he had made it out of the city, but he hadn't made it far out. So Joab, when he returns, he's like, okay, he hadn't been that far. I'm going to send a messenger. And, and Abner thinks, you know, okay, maybe, you know, something was just forgotten. Maybe I, would, I didn't get a communication that I needed. Didn't think anything of it. But what's also important to note is that at the gate, this is like right in the center like of the gate, this is like the city square essentially. And he, Joab doesn't waste any time. I mean, he takes him to the, I mean, kind of a corner. I imagine he's really just in front of everybody. And when he comes up to him, he thrusts a sword through him just as was done to his brother. And it's a public place, but it's doubtful that anything seems suspicious up to this point. But notice how David reacts when he learns about what has happened at the city gate. We look at verses 28 and 29 to see this, and not only does he defend his ignorance and innocence in the matter, but he also condemns and curses Joab and Abishai for their deception and their violence. But look at how David continues to distance himself from his nephews and their actions in verses 31 through 39. Verse 31 says, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron, and the, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them. Just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. 
Now, there's a lot going on here in these, in these last verses of chapter 3. But the main thing that we need to see in this passage is that David, through a variety of expressions and emotions of public grief and, and private proclamation, David is continuing to rebuke Joab and the deed that he has carried out. In the final verse 39, Joab is described as an evildoer and his actions as wickedness. But a question we might ask is this. Since Abner killed Joab's brother, couldn't Joab's actions be considered just in some way? Well, this is why, or this is when we need to remember how Joab's brother Azahel died. Abner had killed Azahel in battle. And if you recall from early on that that was after many attempts to dissuade Azahel from pursuing him. But as David's song and lament described in verse 34, Abner had not been taken as a bound captive, as a shackled prisoner of war. His death was not the result of any kind of official justice. This was a selfish justice. Now, Abner was no saint, but David seemed to regard him as an honorable man, as a man of his word. And therefore, three times in verses 21, 22, and 23, we are told that Abner was sent away from David in peace, and yet certainly didn't die in peace. One of the things that we need to understand is what David understood about Joab's wicked act. Listen as to see what God told the Israelites about murder in Numbers chapter 35. It says this, so you shall not pollute the land in which you are for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live in the, in the midst of which I dwell for I, the Lord am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. We see that he knows what's going on here. David knows all about what's, what's happening because he knows what Numbers says. Now, a fair question to ask maybe at this point is, why didn't David have Joab executed for his deception and for the murder of Joab? Couldn't he have done that? Yes, he, he, cur- he sh- certainly could have. And that would have satisfied the issue of guilt, and it would have been just. So why didn't David do this? Well, we don't exactly know. The most likely reason, I believe, is that David was still too weak politically and Joab was still too influential in the army. David needed Joab, especially as he extended his reign over all of Israel. And as we come closer to our end today, I want to talk about more specifically the three men, Abner, Joab, and David. In James chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, it tells us that we should be able to come to God's word and see ourselves in these pages. We should be able to see ourselves in the people that fill these pages. And as we talked about previously, that should be true in regard to stubborn generals like Abner and Joab, men who, like us, are so often living for their own agenda. But I think we should also Look for our own reflection when we think about David. Did you notice the great lengths that David went to in order to distance himself from Joab's actions? 
In verse 28, he publicly decries Joab's deed. In verse 29, he invokes a curse upon Joab and his family, and David actually is his family. In verse 31, uh, he orders Joab and his men to publicly humble themselves and mourn for Abner. And in verse 31 and 32, then David follows the funeral procession and weeps over Abner's grave. In verse 33 and 34, then David composes a lamentation, a song of lament to honor Abner's memory. In verse 35, then he committed himself to a fast until the end of the day, even making an oath to express his seriousness. Finally, just as he publicly denounced Joab's deed in verses 38 and 39, he privately denounces Joab and praises Abner in the midst of his servants. One might think Abner was David's father or David's best friend, but he actually is neither. And in some sense, having Abner out of his way is politically beneficial to David. You see, David did not go to great lengths just because he was devoted to Abner. No, David went to such great lengths because he was devoted to God. Listen, David could have tried to cover the whole thing up. He could have made it seem like he had, he had ordered the hit or, or whatever in, in, in defense or uh, for justice in some way. Or he could have congratulated Joab on doing what was politically expedient for him. But David could have claimed that what Joab did was the king's will. He could have used Abner's death to send a message to all his enemies, to prove his strength and his his resolve. But David knew what Joab did was wrong. So not only did he genuinely grieve for Abner and grieve over the wicked act that was done, but he made every attempt to distance himself from Joab and Joab's actions. Is it any wonder then that David's first words in the book of Psalms express this same heart? In Psalm 1 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in Psalm 26 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now we come back to verses 36 and 37. And you see, the, the godly impulse that we see in Psalms uh, is the godly impulse that David brings about the response of the people in verses 36 and 37. And I'll say it again. Now all the people who took note of it, and it pleased them. Just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. In my opinion, those really are the key verses here. They help us understand why the writer of 2 Samuel wanted to carefully explain what took place in terms of Joab, Abner, and David. Everyone needed to understand that God's chosen king was not seizing power through deception and violence. And as he had done so for for so many years, on the run in the desert, David was continuing to trust in God and God's timing for the establishing of his kingdom. But what about you? What about me? What about us this morning? Do you love God? Do you love his word? Then to what lengths are you willing to go to distinguish yourself from those who ignore God and ignore his word? How far will you go to demonstrate that you are set apart, that you are distinct? 
I'm not talking about being arrogant or self-righteous in any regard. I'm talking about taking a stand. Haven't God's people always been tempted to not take a stand, to not seem different? Think about how the New Testament writers speak to this. First, we're going to be in Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world. In James 4, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Timothy 1, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our God, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In Philippians 2, you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. When unbelieving family begins to gossip, when coworkers start telling dirty jokes, when a neighbor is slandering another neighbor, when a friend begins tearing down what is good and right and true and glorifying what is wrong and corrupt, to what lengths are you willing to go to be set apart, to be distinct, to take a stand? We are often tempted to believe that being distinct will simply bring ridicule and rejection. And does that happen? Yes, of course it does. Of course it does. But there's another side to this. While being set apart can result in persecution, it can also result in favor, just as we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 3. The people were pleased with David's actions. We actually find a similar response in Acts 2 in reference to the church. As the disciples of Jesus devoted themselves to prayer and the, the apostles' teaching as they ate together and share with one another, we we're told in Acts 2, verse 47, that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And it goes on to tell us the Lord added, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, God wants to use our distinctiveness as a light to others. He wants to use our distinctiveness as a light. We are supposed to be set apart so that when the people who are living for this world and living in this world, that they actually see a difference. They see a better way. They see a way out almost. Some people are so, so hung up and bound by many chains or, or bondage or generational curses, which I talked about last week, that they don't even know how to escape if they wanted to. Because they maybe don't have somebody in their life who is that distinct light that they need to see. Guys, a lot of times, and I know this personally, a lot of times you don't even have to say anything. Just by the way you live, by the way you interact, the, the joy that you have, that the, the fruits of the spirit that you, that you have when you are walking with the Lord, people see that and they say, what are you on? Like, what is it? I want it. And that's your opportunity to be able to share the gospel, share the good news of Jesus. So instead of us trying to worry about who we offend or who we don't offend, by living out our faith and proclaiming truth, we need to be more worried about who are we pleasing? Are we more about 
pleasing, do we care more about pleasing man or do we care more about pleasing God? And I've said it before and I say it again, I would much rather be seen as a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Because when I stand before him one day, when I will and everybody else in this world will, I want to hear those words, faithful servants. I wanna know that I did everything I possibly could for my family, for my friends, for coworkers, for, for whatever, you name it, anybody outside in public at the gas station, for, for friends' friends, for friends' families, whatever it may be, I wanna know that I did everything I possibly could to share that news with them because it is vital. It is vital for their eternal life. Do you want them to be in torment? Do you want them to be in torment forever? No, guys, we, our job is to put it lightly, to, to make heaven crowded. Like, and quite honestly, there's room for everybody, okay? There is, there is no, uh, there's, there's no discretion. There's, there's nothing that can stop anybody from getting to heaven except for us. We stop ourselves and we also stop our friends or our family by not sharing what needs to be shared. We're so worried about the persecution that's gonna come. And guys, over this last few weeks, I've talked about how there's suffering. The Lord doesn't say that we won't have suffering. In fact, it says the opposite. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. So we need to own that persecution. In my opinion, this is what I do. When I'm getting persecuted or getting attacked because of something I said that may have ticked somebody off, I kind of laugh and I'm like, sweet, I did my job. Like, I did it right. Uh, and I know it sounds maybe terrible, but like, I know that I am really ticking off of the demonic when I start to stand against things because it brings a whole new light. It brings a whole new perspective, brings more conversations. And do those conversations generally start really nice? No. People are here to attack. They're, they're coming, but it's not them that I'm, in, I'm at war with. It's not them. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and principalities. So I don't take it out on them. I take it out on the demonic. I know what I'm at war with. Do you know who, you're, who, who, you're, who you are at war with? Are you letting your light shine? Where does the power come from to go even to great lengths to be set apart. Where does that come? It comes from the reality that Jesus Christ went to great lengths for us. Remember, David's righteousness was only a shadow of Jesus. The perfectly righteous king of kings. David condemned an unjust killing, but Jesus was condemned in our place. Jesus was unjustly killed for us. Only through the new heart that Jesus is able to give can we care more about God's opinion and less about the world's. Only when we are confident in the love and promises of God that Jesus secured for us can we confidently take a stand for what is right. And when we do, God wants to, do, God wants to use that stand to point those around us back to Christ so that they will be pleased with everything Jesus has done so that they will give their allegiance to the true king, so that they will give their lives to the true king. Isn't that what it's all about anyways? 
Guys, we, we all have stories, and some you may think that, you know, there's not much to it, but I would disagree. There's somebody out there, somebody you know, somebody around you, or that you will run into one day that needs to hear your story. They need to hear what Jesus has done in your life. And just from knowing my own walk, my own journey, it was years before I was able to share mine. But I tell you what, and it's no surprise, once I did on Easter Sunday, y'all, man, there was attack after attack. The enemy was coming. And, 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 and I knew, I just knew, I was like, yeah, this is exactly what I needed to do. Like the Lord is doing a great work in this. I, like many of conversations that have come up with people that I didn't even know knew who I was anymore. Like they, like I didn't even, haven't talked to them since high school. And they're like reaching out to me, asking about Jesus just because of a, a message that I posted on Spotify. Guys, we have such a great ability in this world, in this day and age, to use the resources that we have to spread the name of Jesus, to be distinct, to let our light shine. So are we using it to the best of our ability? Or are we using it just for our own gain? Are we using it for the glory of God? Are we using it for the glory of self? These are questions we need to ask ourselves, and it's not wrong to take a stand. When you take a stand, there will be persecution, and that's when you know you're on the right page, okay? So be encouraged by that when you take stands. And yes, there is grace in it. That part I haven't exactly figured out, I'll be honest, but there is grace in that process as well. And I want you guys to know that no matter where you are today, no matter who you are, no matter what you walked in here with, God wants to use you. We don't have to have everything figured out to come to him and be used by him at all. At all. Because I, I was in this process for, for too long. Right when I came, right when my, I call it my revival came for my life, I went right into a Bible study and I was learning with the other people that I was, like had invited. And there was so much that was done in that, in that, in that group. And I wasn't, I didn't have all the answers. Even now I don't have all the answers, but I know the Lord still uses me just as a vessel. He wants his word to be spoken. He wants his will to be done. And I'm only a vessel, guys. There's not one single pastor who will step on this stage or any stage you go, quite honestly, that can save you. There's not one that can save you. There's not one who will change your life or anything. It may be the words that they speak, but I believe that that is the Holy Spirit speaking right through them. It's all for his glory. It's not for our own. So I just want us to close our eyes and bow our heads real quick and just take a moment just to reflect on who, who are we out in this world? We may come in here with a mask or, or, a, or um, an image that we want to portray on a Sunday, but who are we on Monday through Saturday? What light are we portraying? What distinctiveness do we have? Do we have any? Is it time for us to lay things down at the foot of the cross? Is it time to lay things down at the altar this morning?
you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.